0: We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark as we walk with Jesus, learning how to be like Jesus, learning how to think like Jesus, and ultimately how to live like Jesus, not just individually, but like as a people, as a church, as a family, a people called out for this purpose in our world. This morning, we're taking a look at three scenes that are going to challenge us along the way as we move quickly through these next three scenes in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to enter into these three scenes by looking at our human desire to control. That is, there is a general human desire to control things, to understand things. We want to understand, we want to categorize things so that we can control them. Or maybe the things that we don't understand, we want to eliminate those things. So we will slap labels on them so that we can control or ultimately get rid of them. And this, I think, is what lays behind, at least sits behind some of our love in our day of personality tests, right? That desire to categorize every part of us. To understand ourselves. Recently, on a podcast that I know at least two people that really like this podcast, one of them being my wife, it is a podcast called Hidden Brain. NPR puts this podcast out, and every once in a while I'll listen to an episode that tests will recommend to me. And one of those recently was called The Sorting Hat. And it was What Can a Personality Test Tell Us About Who We Are? And this podcast was all about understanding personality tests. I want to read to you the transcript from the introduction of this episode from Hidden Brain. Here's what the host starts with. In one of the most famous scenes from the Harry Potter series, a group of kids new to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry line up before an old and crumpled wizard's hat. It is called the sorting hat. The hat will tell them which house they'll belong to during their Hogwarts education. There is something deeply appealing about the sorting hat. It is wise. It seems to know people better than they know themselves. We humans love this kind of insight, and our drive to better understand ourselves and the people around us has led to the creation of a multi-billion dollar industry built around personality testing. Probably the most famous of all personality tests is the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator or the MBTI. But there are plenty of others. These tests categorize. These tests categorize people based on personality traits. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Someone who likes unexpected challenges or someone who prefers structure and calm? Many of America's most successful companies use personality tests to gain a better understanding of their workers. Many individuals use them to gain a better understanding of themselves. I don't know if you've ever taken one of these personality tests. I've taken many of them. If you have ever taken the Myers-Briggs, just so you know, I am an ENTJ. So I don't know if that says anything to you. Maybe it doesn't. I just spoke gibberish. That's fine. But I am an ENTJ. What what, what, What we want to get at here is this human desire to control things, to categorize things, to throw labels on things so that we can understand them better. And if we don't understand them, we often throw labels in order to control and eliminate. And that human desire was just as strong in Jesus' day as it is in our own day. And what we see in Jesus' day is groups of people coming into contact with Jesus and having a very hard time understanding Him. And what often happened was that people would throw labels on Jesus or they would put him in a particular box. And they would then use these boxes to control him or use these boxes as a way of eliminating him. And so today we're taking a look at three scenes in the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus put into three different boxes along the way. Each of these boxes as a way to control him, as a way of understanding him, as a way to eliminate him. Because he was offensive to the people of his day. And so we're going to look at three boxes, three boxes along the way. These three boxes are crazy, possessed, and family. Along the way, we're going to see that the people say to Jesus, you're crazy, you're possessed, and you're family. And each of these boxes is a way of controlling or eliminating Jesus. And so we're going to look at this passage, study these three themes, dig in deep, and then let's make some application for our life. Let's get this down to where you and I live in our everyday lives. Mark chapter 3, that's where we'll be. Mark chapter 3, we're picking up in the story. We've been on this journey now for several weeks, moving quickly through this rapid account of Jesus' life. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we pick up there. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's how big the crowd was, not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Immediately we see his family putting him in the crazy box. Now sometimes family members need to be put in the crazy box. Like, that's just what they are. Now, if you don't know who in your family is the crazy one, it's probably, it's probably you. That's, it's probably you. But here we see Jesus' family coming around him, putting him in the crazy box as a way to control him. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have this family member public, uh, in a public ministry, in a public setting, describing things that made no sense to a lot of people. Can you imagine what that would have done to your own reputation? What that would have done to your family name? And here now, we see Jesus' family coming in, slapping him with the label crazy, putting him in that nice, neat box, so they can kind of usher him away from the crowd and get him under control. And I don't want us to underestimate how Jesus' family viewed him. How much resistance he received just from his immediate brothers and sisters. There's this scene later on in Jesus' life in John chapter seven, verses two through five, where we see Jesus' brothers even mocking him. I just want you to understand that this box they've put him in in Mark 3 doesn't come out of nowhere. Take a look, John chapter 7, verse two through five. When the Jewish festival of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, "Leave Galilee and go to Judea." so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. I think there was sarcasm all over that because of verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So when he shows up in the scene we're now looking at, They can't understand all that's happening. They don't understand all that Jesus is about. They don't understand this kingdom that he is declaring. And so they put him in the crazy box as a way of controlling him. The crazy box. Again, a nice, neat category in order to usher Jesus away and get him under control. That's crazy. That's that box. Let's pick up. Let's continue in the story. This is the largest box they put Jesus in. This is the one where we get the most details. Let's pick up verse 22. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, then that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying because they were saying he has an impure spirit. There's a lot going on here. But at its base understanding meaning, we have here the teachers of the law, they've come from Jerusalem, so these are substantial figures, and they've come and they've encountered Jesus here casting out demons and they declared that this man is demon possessed and they've put him in this box of possession. Ultimately, it'll be a box that they can use to eliminate Jesus. But Jesus then takes this box, he rejects it, and he responds to them in two ways. The first thing he does is that he exposes, he exposed their flawed thinking. He exposed their flawed thinking here. Now, really, at a simple level, what Jesus says here just makes sense. Satan cannot be against Satan that Satan is not going to have an civil war inside of his own kingdom so he says their thinking is flawed from the beginning Satan wouldn't cast out Satan now there's an irony on the back of this remember Jesus has been declaring all along that the kingdom of heaven is at hand he he is overtaking the devil's kingdom that is that the reign of Satan is crumbling. And here you have these religious leaders challenging the very message of Jesus, and yet, by calling Jesus demon possessed, what they're saying here is that, that, if, that by Satan rejecting himself, that is, casting himself out of people, that would mean there would be civil war, Which that would mean that if a kingdom is divided, it's crumbling. So, do you see the irony? That in the moment they say, at the moment they're saying that Satan is casting himself out, Jesus turns the logic back on them and says, if this would be the case, if a kingdom is divided up on itself, if Satan is divided on himself, against himself, then that would mean that the kingdom of Satan is crumbling. Which would mean Jesus is an agent of God's kingdom. Do you see the irony behind this? And so, there is flawed thinking in calling Jesus demon-possessed. So, he rejects that box. Now, the second thing he does is he identified himself as the strong man that has tied up Satan. He's identified himself as the strong man that has tied up Satan. Now, we need to take this in two parts. So, there's this tied up Satan part. Jesus has tied up Satan... In that moment when he was in the wilderness and he was able to stand against the temptations of the devil. So if you remember, when Jesus starts his public ministry, he goes, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And in that moment when he's baptized by John the Baptist, he's taken immediately into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and he's tempted by Satan. And remember that all humans have been taken down this road of temptation and all that are conscience have, have gone the way of the temptations. Until Jesus shows up and Jesus is now in the wilderness he's tempted by Satan in full force and he resists Satan and that is a way of declaring that Satan has now been tied that is he's been limited that the temptations of Satan the way of the world has now been limited in the person of Jesus and we know that after the temptation in the wilderness Jesus then goes on to his public ministry. And what do we see happening? We see Jesus making inroads into the devil's territory. We start to see that diseases are cured, that bodies, they're healed, and demons are now being cast out of people. They no no longer have power to hold a soul by their own will. And so Jesus, after the temptation in the wilderness, has bound up, that is, limited Satan, and we see Jesus on the move, making an advance into Satan's kingdom. We will ultimately see victory at the cross and in the resurrection, but we're not there yet. Here, we simply see a strong man who has tied Satan. Now, this strong man piece is is the one that really trips people up in the story. Jesus declares that he's actually the strong man. He is the one that has bound Satan, at least limited him in this time. And so what in the world does it look like to be a strong man who has bound Satan? Jesus has already been identified as the one who is strong in our story. The Gospel of Mark actually launches with a declaration that Jesus is the stronger one. Now, I want to actually quote here from the King James Version. The King James gets the sense of that initial declaration at the start of Mark. So let's take a look, Mark chapter 1 verse 7. There this is John the Baptist preaching and preach that's John the Baptist preach saying there cometh one mightier than I after me the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. The word mightier actually carries the sense of power, strength. But that's a real big problem for the people. It's a problem because of this next statement. Take a look at this. This becomes a real big problem. The people expected the Messiah to be a strong warrior king who would slaughter their enemy. They didn't understand that Jesus' Jesus's strength would de- be displayed on the cross. He came to destroy death by dying and rising again. This made no sense that you would have strength in suffering. The way of the Roman world is that power is declared through your sword. It's put on, displayed through your violence. It's demonstrated in your justice. And so when you have a rebel, you destroy them. And here the Jews are expecting a great warrior king to emerge and to sit on David's throne forever and ever. And, the, and, and, and in the wake of all of that, there would be the blood of the Romans running through the streets of Jerusalem because the Messiah would have declared victory and vengeance on God's enemies. And so here, when Jesus declares something about being strong, they are expecting him to wield a very big big sword. We might think of it like we'd expect God to have, like Jesus to have a shotgun on on himself or pull out his bazooka Like, we'd expect to see Rambo here, but instead we will see a suffering servant. This makes no sense to the people. Later in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to take a look at this in the weeks to come. Jesus' own disciples have a very hard time understanding all of this. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 33, we read this Then Jesus began to tell them, here he's speaking to the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, he would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter and the other disciples had no box to put Jesus in. There was no template for understanding a Messiah who would declare victory through a Roman cross. That made no sense. And so when, you come, when we come and encounter the religious leaders of that day coming from Jerusalem, at that moment when they declare that Jesus is demon-possessed, we get to that moment because of this next statement. Because they didn't have a box for a suffering Messiah, the religious leaders forced him into a box they already had. You're possessed. They had that box. They could deal with a demon-possessed Jesus by eliminating him. They didn't know how to handle the other Jesus. And as often happens in human life, when you don't understand someone, you slap a label on them and get rid of them. You put them in their box and you move them on their way, or you eliminate them. And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus in this moment. Let's take now the third scene, where he gets put in the family box. We'll pick up verse 31, chapter 3. We're now finishing our passage this morning. Last scene, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Again, we come back, bookend the passage with this third scene where Jesus' family make another attempt to get to him, get through the crowd, usher him off, and silence him. And this time, they're not going to use the crazy box. They're going to use the family box. Hey, we're family. And like family has privileges. Family has certain rights. So we're family. We'll get to Jesus. We'll say, hey, man, we're all family. Let's just come on and stop all this talk about this new kingdom of God. Let's just go home. Let's just live a quiet life. And they put this label... Of family on top of Jesus. And what does he do? He rejects that label. They've tried to put him in this nice, neat box, family. And Jesus redefines family in that moment. Jesus would not be reduced to his blood family. He just wouldn't. Instead, he redefines who are in his family. They are all who would do God's will. And so if you take those three scenes together, I think Jesus is declaring something profound and very challenging for the people with ears in that day. This is the way I would say it. Ultimately, Jesus was saying, I don't fit into your boxes. You must fit into mine. You don't define me. I define you. Can you imagine if someone said that to you today? You'd throw them in a box and get rid of them. That's what you do. You might throw them in the crazy box. That's what you do to someone that talks like that. And yet, the people encountering Jesus and these three things really only had two things, two options in front of them. They could throw Jesus in these preconceived boxes, slap on these nice categories, these easy labels, and control or eliminate Jesus, or they could blow up their boxes. They could come to Jesus, they could learn from him and submit to him. Those really are the two options in front of them. And what happens when you don't blow up your boxes and you keep putting Jesus in these preconceived boxes is you miss the very thing that the Spirit of God is doing through Jesus in that moment. You see, in this moment, in these scenes... The Spirit of God is working powerfully through Jesus in this moment. The kingdom of God is being ushered in. A new world order is on the scene. The Spirit of God is transforming human life. And yet all the people can do is say, he's crazy, he's possessed, he's family. And they missed him. And if you keep missing Jesus because you keep putting him in boxes... You ultimately, in the end, can never come to Jesus. And if Jesus is the source of all life, you will end up with death. If you can never get to Jesus, you end up with death. One scholar says it this way when talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here's how he describes it. Once you label what is in fact the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil, there's no way back. You will be blind to the truth. It isn't that God gets especially angry with one sin in particular. That's often the way this is taught, right? It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you will never give your consent to the operation. So when Jesus comes to that end of his teaching in the middle of our passage saying that Anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. It's in this way he's describing. That if you cannot see me, if all you've done is reduce me to boxes, you will never come to me for life. If you think I'm crazy, if you think I'm possessed, if all you say is, nice, poor old family guy, if all you do is put me in boxes, then you're never going to find life. You will never find forgiveness. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the best guess I've ever heard as it's described here. Now, with all that said, I think this has something to say to you and me where we find ourselves here in 2019. So let's make some application on these three scenes. I, I think we first need to start our application with this hard word from Jesus I think Jesus says to us today, I don't fit into your boxes. You must fit into mine. You don't define me. I define you. Now, again, if we heard someone say that to us in our day, someone with flesh on, someone we knew, we'd put them in the crazy box and move them on. But I think this is exactly the kind of thing Jesus is saying to us in our day. Which really poses this question then, doesn't it? It poses this question that you and I need to ask. What boxes are you putting Jesus in? I mean, think about it. We want Jesus to make sense. We don't want a Jesus that offends us. Now, I understand when we're in church, we really like the idea of having our feet stepped on. I get it. But really, do you really want a Jesus who's going to challenge you all the time? Do you want a Jesus who's going to make you uncomfortable? You see, I think we often put Jesus in comfortable boxes that we can control. Let me give you a few that I think we might use. Maybe this is coming, hitting a little close to my life. Maybe that's how I came up with them. You got Jesus in his genie in a, the bottle, genie in a bottle box, right? This is the Jesus that will give you everything you want but never challenge you. This is when you have something hard going on in life, you go to your Jesus, you rub the lamp, he comes out, he gives you what you want, he fixes all all of life's troubles, and then you put him back in his lamp, and on you go with life. Or maybe it's record keeper Jesus. Maybe this is a view of Jesus, that all he is is up in heaven somewhere, very far away, making sure that you do more good things than bad things in life. I get it. We all say Jesus died for our sins. It's by grace you're saved. I get it. We know the lines. But how do we live? Have we put Jesus in the record keeper box where in the end we really think Jesus is up in heaven somewhere tallying all the bad things we ever do? But when we do the good ones, we also know he's keeping record of those. and We just hope that in the end we'll have more good than bad. Is your Jesus a record keeper? Is Jesus a record keeper? Because in the end, you can try to figure out how to do more good things than bad, and then you can control the system. Or maybe he's just a church dweller. I think this one really can hit close to home for those that have grown up in the church. Sometimes we tend to think that Jesus just exists right here in this room. So if you ever say, I can't, don't say that, or I can't say that, or you can't say that because we're in the Lord's house, You might think Jesus just dwells in this building. Do you know that if you say something bad in this building, it might also be bad on the ball field? Do you know if what you say may not work in the building or next to the preacher, it may also not work in your living room? If you think that Jesus is just a church dweller, then you've just put him in a nice, neat box you can control. Just think about that. Just think about that. Or irrelevant. Is he irrelevant? I think at the end of the day, this might be where we all land at some point. He just really doesn't get my life. It really doesn't have anything to say about where I find myself. I mean, if you're an ad agent, what does Jesus really have to say to you? If you're a teacher, does he really have something to say to you? Or is it just that we need to make sure to show up at church, do your thing, get your points, and head home? I don't know. I'm just working through this. What boxes might you put Jesus? These are just four. I think we've got a host of other boxes we might put Jesus. There are many in our world that will put Jesus in a political box. They'll put him in a social box. They'll put him in an economic box. Many... Throughout history, over the last couple hundred years, have called Jesus a capitalist. Some have claimed he's a communist. We put him in these nice, neat boxes along the way, and then we leverage him for our means. It did not work. It did not work when Jesus was on earth. It will not work in our day. Jesus needs to offend us. He must challenge us. And he must call us to a different kind of life. That's the kind of life he's calling us into the kingdom. So let's now move to this next slide where I think we can, we can make a step at least. What does all this look like for your real life? I'm going to suggest four things. I'm not going to suggest what this looks like for you, because I have no idea what this would look like for your life. But to blow up your boxes... Learn from Jesus, come to him, learn from him, and submit to him. Again, I don't know what that's going to look like for you. But I know that at some point, when we get to a place where we say, man, I might be putting Jesus in a box, that's a place that you can actually start moving to a different place with Jesus. I think the people in the stories that we read were very comfortable putting Jesus in all three boxes. I tend to think we are too. The message today is one to awaken us to a new potential. Let's take some next steps. Let's take some next steps. These are things you can do today. Pray that you would see Jesus more clearly. I'm not giving some religious answer here, like some nice spiritual response to the message. I'm saying literally talk to God and say, will you help me see you more clearly? Would you start breaking open the boxes I've put Jesus in? And I'm just saying God might answer that. God might do a work in you. So I'm just leaning on the fact that God listens to prayer, that he doesn't mind being in conversation with us, and he actually answers requests. Now, that's what you can do. Let me suggest something that you can ask someone else to do for you. This is where it gets a little more uncomfortable. I would say just a few of us might actually do this. But if you are one of those people that say, fine, he said I won't do it, I'm going to do it, that was my goal there. Let's go to this next slide. Ask someone else to pray for you, literally. Like, you go to another person, will you pray for me, and would you pray this, that, Jesus, that I would see Jesus more clearly? So if you have a spouse, why don't you just ask that spouse, hey, would you pray for me that I see Jesus more clearly? And that provides some accountability there. If you want to be like super spiritual champions, have that person pray out loud right in front of you in that moment. I know, I know, I know. Just take a breath. Let's go one more. Let's go one step. One more step. Read from one of the Gospels this week. Now, you know, i got to be honest. I was like thinking, man, should I give them a scripture they need to read? Like, read this passage every day this week. And I thought, no, these are adults. You have Bibles. Just turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read something. Read something. Read a verse. Read 10 verses. Read 10 chapters. There is no law here. The goal is to hear the voice of Jesus. The goal is to watch him in his story. And the best way to do that is to read one of the gospel accounts. So you figure out what that might look like. But each day this week, open up one of the gospels and read something. Make it a game or make it a big challenge. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that you and I would come into contact with Jesus and let him build the box he wants to build rather than put him in the box we, where we want him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that many years ago, there were men inspired to record the life of Jesus, and we thank you that even this day, it is scandalous. It challenges us. We thank you for the teachings of Christ, we thank you for his boldness, and we thank you for his example. And we ask that as we come into contact with Jesus, as not only do we ask you in this moment that we could see Jesus more clearly, but even as other people pray for us and as we open up the Gospels themselves, would you bust open all the boxes that we have created to insert your son so that we can control him or eliminate him. Father, we want to be a people who can see Jesus clearly and we can help one another do it in the church. We can be a community of love being built up the full measure of your son, Jesus. And we're going to need to see Jesus clearly. So whatever needs to be blown up, blow it up so that we might see clearly and we may come to find life in your spirit. We do not want to be a people who think the doctor is a murderer. So help us. And whatever that looks like in ordinary life for us, would you take us to that place? And we'll just lean on you to help us even today. And we pray all of this under His name. He is King, He is Lord, He is Teacher, and He is our friend. Under His power and under His authority we ask it. And together we say...